So we're going to be in John 21. We're going to finish um, our study through the book of John today. Um, I'm not going to go through the entirety of of the chapter of 21. I've already covered it in previous messages. A lot of folks are saying, why aren't you doing all of the book of John on Sunday morning? Uh, The Calvary model is... We go through a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings and we do topical aspects, still in an exegetical mindset. And then Sunday nights typically is when you go through the entirety of of the book. Uh, And then Wednesdays you do another book and we're going through the book of Acts on Wednesdays. Sunday nights I've turned over to our younger ministers, both um, Mark and Zach, and I've let them kind of do what they want to do on Sunday nights. So it's not a typical Calvary model. Some folks may be frustrated with it, but we do get the gist of the text. And I've covered every portion of John. If you want to go online and, and get the remaining studies, you can do that as well. But we're going to finish up um, our, our study in the book of John by looking at the first 14 verses of the book. Um, but before I get into that, I wanted to share with you that as soon as we finish John 21, uh, I'm actually even going to deviate a little bit more from a, a, a typical exegetical Sunday morning. I'm going to do a couple of weeks, if not more, on something that's just really stirring in my heart. Uh, I'll give you a preview of it a little bit, but uh, this was this was really uh, put into my heart on Tuesday. Tuesday, as you know, was Veterans Day, and... Um, uh, or let's see, yeah, Wednesday. I, it's, I leave tomorrow for Virginia. I don't even know where I am. So yeah, Wednesday was Veterans Day. And um, I was asked by the city, uh, civic duty to, as a city council member, to attend one of the Veterans Day celebrations. And they do one at Conejo Creek Park. And most of the council members went there. And we've neglected uh, as a council to attend the Reagan Library Veterans event. And so I volunteered to do that not knowing what I was in for, and it was going to take up a portion of my Wednesdays. Wednesdays are typically pretty busy. I've got Kiwanis, and and then uh, to go to the veterans thing was full. And, and so Michelle uh, went with me. We were supposed to be there at 10 o'clock. We were told that uh, there'd be a speaker and a luncheon following afterwards, and so they'd like us to stay for the extent of it. And we thought, okay, it's a long day. It's going to take us probably about 2, 10 to 2, and uh, get back here to do the Sunday night service. So I was quite involved. And I didn't know what to expect, so I got to the Reagan Library, uh, pull in, and uh, and walk in, and they usher me to the front, and I'm in the front row, right in front of the dais, and there was a sign on the seat that said, the Honorable Rob McCoy and Mrs. Michelle McCoy. I'm like, I've never been called honorable a day in my life. I, and I got a little irritated. I was thinking, it should say the, the Honorable Right Reverend, uh, but I, I didn't, uh, no. So I sat down, and, and I, on the way in, I had seen a book that they were selling uh, with a man on the front. His name was Travis Mills, and I uh, saw the book, and I was really moved by it, and that was the speaker that day, and they were signed copies, so I bought one for myself, and, and there was the captain of the Navy base, Captain Hill, and his daughter, Rachel, and they were guests, and they were seated there, and I bought a book for the captain, and uh, we were sitting in the front, and, and the Santa Susana Band the High School was playing, and they were doing patriotic songs. They had a choir. It was lovely. Didn't know what to expect, and then all of a sudden, uh, Travis Mills comes out to share. I was deeply moved by him. Um, amazing, amazing man. Um, I want to show you this video. Let's lower the lights if we could. And this is Travis Mills, and I had a chance to meet him.
my job was the military. I loved it, you know, working with soldiers every day, doing my job was, was like the greatest for me. Coming home to my wife and kid was the best, you know, and I had a really good life mapped out. I was really doing well. People call me a hero, but I'm not sure what part of it makes me a hero. I just had a normal day at work that turned ugly. About six seconds, I guess, later, and I woke up. My medic came running up at me. I need more people over here to put on tourniquets! In about 20 seconds, he had tourniquets on both legs and both arms. I guess the last thing I said, my baby girl, am I ever going to see her again? You know, that was out. <laughs> I'm getting teared up a little, sorry. <laughs> but I was really worried about what, uh, what life was going to be like afterwards, you know, like with all this. out of here in 10 months, kept saying, why? You know, what's your big rush? I said, hey, doc, look behind you. I had pictures of me and my wife and my daughter. I have a family. Like, I, I live in a hospital bed. Get me out of here. My goal was to let them know I keep working, I keep going hard. If I give up, I'm giving up on my family. Challenge, but it's not a challenge you can't overcome. So um, he he st he stayed around for anyone who bought a book, autograph to sign it, and everyone did, and they lined up, and he stayed for every person to take a picture with him. And they asked us, the folks at the Reagan Library, uh, the captain, his daughter, Michelle, and myself, to stick around because there was a reception lunch following, I assumed a number of people. And so we waited, and uh, it was a long line. And uh, in the course of it, I had my wife and I had the chance to meet... Um, a World War II veteran, his name was Billy Blair. Uh, there's 700,000 uh, World War II veterans remaining in the United States of a nation of 340 million. And in 10 years, there's not going to be any left. That's Billy Blair. Sweet man. My, my wife says she loves older guys. So, and then so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm getting grayer. Um, 
But but I had the chance to get a picture with Travis. Uh, this, is, this is me and Travis. And uh, what was fascinating is is after he finished signing the books, the the folks at the Reagan Library said it's time for lunch. Why don't you go on upstairs for the reception lunch? And I thought, okay, it's probably going to be a large group of people. We went upstairs, and it was one table, and it was Travis, his father-in-law, Michelle, myself, the captain, his daughter, and a couple folks from the Reagan Library. And we sat down for an hour and a half with Travis, and um, lovely man. He loves the Lord. Uh, his wife loves the Lord. Um, he said, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I struggled when I was laying in that hospital bed. You know, what, you're asleep at the wheel, God. What's going on here? You know, and, but he went through his, his faith and, and how he came to Christ. And, and he said, you know, Rob, I'm under contract with the book company. But in February, my contract's up. And he said, I, I, I really want to come and speak and share with your church. And, and I was really touched by that. He lives in Maine. And one of the things that really affected me is he said, you know, they call me a wounded warrior. And he said, I resent that. I'm not wounded. I'm healed. I have scars, but I'm healed. And, and I'm not a warrior. I'm a veteran. And uh, he said, you know, this is my new normal. And, and I, nothing changed. I'm still a husband. I'm still a father. This is just my new normal. And he said, and anyone who wakes up with one limb, you're having a good day. So quit whining. And uh, just, just an exceptional man and a lot of humor. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you meet him. But as I, I left that event and uh, came back to the congregation, um, I'd received a, a, an email from somebody sending it to me as a council member. I think the other council members received it as well. It was, it was an awful email and, and uh, really affected me. And considering especially what happened in France, now we're at over 130 dead. You know, let's stop for a minute and just pray for those, those folks. Lord, we, we lift up the family members in that nation and all that have been affected by that terror violence. Lord, it just seems as though in so many ways the world is aflame and, and people don't know what the point of government is and there's ideologies that are eviscerating mankind and Lord, we want our veterans to, to vend ideals but we don't even know what ideals we stand for. And, and I, I just think a, a Travis, Lord, here's a man that battled for Fallujah and, and now it's, it's ground that's been taken by folks they defended it from having and lord our veterans aren't to occupy land they're to defend ideals but we as a nation have lost what it is we're about and we're watching as europe is struggling and the world is embroiled and god please i just pray that you'd inspire us and as it says in revelation 3 that you would strengthen the things that remain show us what we're to do as your people help us god i pray in jesus name amen and then in the course of the week, I, I, I saw a um, uh, social media dialogue, blog, whatever, I don't know what it was, uh, over folks arguing over the red cups at Starbucks. <laughs> that, that, that Starbucks has taken Christ out of Christmas. And, and then, you know, you had two sides in the Christian debate. Folks were decrying the decline of Christian presence in America. Others were saying, the barista is not our savior, let it go. And... <laughs> And, and, and usually it was the older folks that were decrying the, the dissolving of Christian presence and the younger folks, you know, decrying their whining. And, and yet I looked at both sides and I thought, you're both tragically wrong. I, I struggle at, at the, I guess it would be, in, in, a, in a sense, this platonic piety of our younger generation. Piety is... is, is, is um, an effort to come against formalism. 
Formalism is the structure that they consider stuffy and difficult, and formalism is too heady, and, and they want to be more relevant and more relevant to their culture. And, and our young folks are the ones that are, you know, they spend an hour in church on a Sunday, but then they spend eight hours in a secular world being bombarded by the antithesis of everything they've been taught on a Sunday. And, and they're trying to have their Christian walk exist in the midst of a secular world. Whereas the older folks grew up in, in something that had a resemblance of a Christian world view, and, and we're watching that dissolve, and, and they're trying to relate, and, and yet we're losing this. And so there's a rebellion against formalism, I get that, but this piety where they want to separate the holy from the secular, like, you know, young people, I don't do politics, it's all dirty, and they want to separate themselves, the holy, Christ doesn't have any influence in the secular, that isn't acceptable either. And it's platonic, because the idea of platonic is you, you profess Christ, you profess, you know, the solo scriptura, you know, all, you know, only glory goes to God, and you go through all of these aspects, and you're bold in your preaching of that, but it's platonic because it has no revolutionary effect to transform a culture. You're trying to remain relevant in the culture, but you're not affecting it to transform it. And in the same regard, I don't mind the younger folks decrying the whining of the older folks because they're in this mess because we didn't do what we could have done when we were their age. And then we're watching as Europe is being just inundated with, with, with heartache as, as Paris is in flames, over 130 people dead, hundreds wounded of a violent act of people that if you don't subscribe to our religion, we will kill you. And, and we look and we say, well, what does government have to do with any of it? And, and to decry and say America isn't a Christian nation, I get that idea that, yes, when it was founded, not everyone who founded it was a Christian. But, but don't mistake this idea that the concept of this nation, having been under one birth certificate for 239 years, that birth certificate, listen to me, is a spiritual document because it deals with spiritual truths. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That has nothing to do with materialism. It has nothing to do with chance or chaos. It is based on this idea that there is a supreme lawgiver that we are accountable to, and those rights are inalienable, that, you, that, that will never be taken away from you. God has given them to you. The, the purpose of government is to defend those rights. If a government rises in contradiction... If a government rises in contradiction to that supreme law, it is the right of the people to throw off that government. That's, that's in our Declaration of Independence. You can read that on your own. But we're looking and we're saying, Travis Mills, did he lose all four limbs to defend territory or to defend ideals that have transformed the world? 3% of the world's population is what America is. We're responsible for more patents, more Nobel Peace Prizes, more symphonies, the greatest accumulation of wealth of any nation in the history of the world. Based on a document that had this unbelievable balance between liberty and license. If, if, if everyone is free to do what they want, it's chaos. But yet we have liberty to accomplish these things. And yet this license that we're governed. And, and we look at it and we say, how did we accomplish such freedom? When we sing our national anthem, home of the free, we, we cheer. Because we have that. 
But freedom isn't license to do as you please. There's, there's a, an accountability to a supreme God. When I was sworn in as the council member, no longer do you put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand to acknowledge that there is a supreme authority. Now you just raise your right hand and you swear by what? I don't know. And, and as I'm reciting those words, am I free through situational ethics and, and being that there are no absolutes from this mindset because we've removed the scriptures and that foundational principle of a supreme lawgiver, am I free to hear the words that they're saying and interpret them as I please? What is the accountability? We have two competing worldviews. One is rights come from man and rights come from God. And to say that we're not a Christian nation, I would say go all the way back and find out how we came about being who we are today. The Magna Carta in 1215 with this concept of Lex Rex that was influenced by it. Lex Rex was that the king was submissive to the scriptures. Going into even the Protestant Reformation and, and looking at the early Christians in the first century, they rebelled against Caesar because they would not worship Caesar. And, and you, 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 you see this this, this Protestant Reformation was a protest. It was a revolution. When, when, when the scriptures and the church would come together and the church would override the scriptures, that's where Martin Luther protested that. And, and if the state overrides the scriptures, that's the revolution that we, we experienced with our, our, our colonies. And it was, the, it was the great awakening with Whitfield. And Jonathan Edwards that inspired a generation of people to establish this form of government never before known on the face of the earth. And we are at a a, a crisis right now because everything has been reversed. It's no longer God-centered. They're removing this idea that God exists and every one of these First Amendment rights are being removed. And as I looked at it, I thought, I we've got to address this. We have to. Now it's going to require in the next couple of weeks, you've got to put your thinking caps on. It's it's not going to be you know, it's going to be heady. And may, maybe it'll cause a church to be preached down to a manageable size. I don't know. I don't want anyone to leave. But the reality is, there, there, is Jesus Christ Lord of all? Yes or no? I agree. And, and, and to, to have words without action, and to think that we're somehow being relevant by attacking people of faith, Any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. I would say to the young people, are you inspired to see something bigger than yourselves and realize the gift you've been given? And can we reinstill in you that opportunity to transform the world? I wrote down a few thoughts and we'll get into the the scripture because in John 21, there are seven men of, of the original 12 apostles that are present for the third revisiting of Christ as he's resurrected from the grave. And he uses a picture in the first 14 verses of John 21 to inspire these men to transform the world. And and it's a very profound picture because he's going to tie it in with a couple of other events that occurred in our study of the book of John. But before we get to that, let me share with you some ideas. When our founding document says certain inalienable rights, who gives those rights? God. The law is king because the lawgiver is the Lord. And you have liberty and license, but apart from God, what is the adequate basis for law? Those who are in authority make the laws, and they're not accountable to God for those laws. I received this, 
And this was the email that I think the other council members received as well. And I was deeply burdened by it. This was someone who, I won't have time to read, well, I'll, I'll blow through it real quick. It reads, humanity as a species is being pushed to the brink of environmental and economic collapse an extinction, on an extinction level by forces of our own making. In order to guard the remaining life of this planet, we must organize a force of creation to counter these forces of destruction. The United Federal Republic, UFR, is that force. It is the culmination of humanity as a united species and the unification of our global community. It is a non-hegemonic, non-conforming collective that preserves all cultures and connects all peoples of the nations and world together in a single arena. In order to deal with local and world issues diplomatically and expediently, the goal of the UFR, USSR, UFR, is to establish a system that can responsibly and quickly complete the transition from our current type zero level civilization complexity into a type one civilization. This transition will recreate the very foundation and notion of human life. A massive public tribunal is required to properly investigate, prosecute, and make detailed recordings of the intolerant groups, current, federal, state, and municipal governments, departments, and agencies, all corporations, companies, industries, and religious structures and groups, social institutions, and any remaining group or institution that stands in the way of the UFR. For the need to establish a new code of law and remove corrupt, hostile, or negative self-special interests, as well as preserving knowledge that can be passed on to new generations and systems, failure to act will lead to more and more communities and cities igniting in civil unrest, as well as destruction by climactic forces. If you have self-interest or special interest in upholding the status quo, there will be consequences that will impact you the more you perpetuate those interests. I hope this will make you reevaluate your notion of upholding those interests. History honors those who identify and correct their errors. Zikail. We have formalism and structure that was given by this concept of God as the supreme lawgiver. Over here, you have a chaotic world of materialism that acknowledges no God. These two ideas are clashing. Europe is folding. America is in trouble. And we are on the brink of this gospel we declare. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. 87 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from America. You shut this down and it is silenced. And to be apathetic in this day and age and not know why we have what we have, we're all in trouble and it, all it is is pietistic, platonic worthlessness. There needs to be a strength in the body of Christ. These are all new areas for me. Authority resting in the scripture rather than the church or scripture or the government in scripture. Authority of the law is rooted in the God who is the final reality. That is our worldview. It's under attack. I'm not speaking of a theocracy where, where you know, we, we have this. I'm talking about God's people realizing that God has created government through the Noahic covenant for the protection of man. We have one religion that is saying if you don't adhere to it, you die. We have a worldview that says we weren't created, we're just a cosmic accident, and there's no value in man, and those who are in power are the ones that make the laws. 
Then we have the Christian worldview that says all men have been created equal and been given certain inalienable rights that can't be taken away, but it's our job to defend and protect those. So what will we do? And in the coming days, we need to be prepared for that because these seven men on the shores of Galilee in John 21 turn the world right side up. And you sit today in a nation that has has experienced unprecedented freedom for 239 years that is, is one generation away from extinction. And, and what was done on the shores of Galilee in John 21 absolutely revolutionized the world. And God used, he, he used uh, a visual and an and auditory picture for the disciples to grasp. And we're going to witness that today, so please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again, this is his third time, again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret as the Jews call it. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin. We studied him last week. And guess what? Thomas isn't missing church. He's there. I'm glad all of you are as well. Thomas called the twin Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. We don't know who the two were, and they could be any number of six that were um, not mentioned. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Bubkis, zilch, zero, nada. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It was still dark. The sun was just rising. And Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fishes or fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he's writing this. That's funny. Said to, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Then Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I ask that you would inspire, bless, convict, exhort, challenge, and equip us for your glory. Glorify us, Lord, that we might glorify you through your living word, your word that you hold above your name your word which is supreme, your word which is living and powerful and able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the word that spoke the heavens into existence and causes our heart to beat and our lungs to move, your word as it declares that you hold all things together by the power of your word. Lord, let us cherish it, apply it, and live by it and honor it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated.
I want to read to you one more portion. Whose system? Well, let me start with this one first. This was written by James Henry Siner, the U.S. Constitution. He was also the president of the Maryland Bible Society. Religion is a social concern, for it operates powerfully, contributing in various ways to its stability and prosperity. Religion is not merely a private affair. The community is deeply interested in its diffusion, for it is the best support of the virtues and principles on which the social order rests. Pure and undefiled religion is to do good, and it follows very plainly that if God be the author and friend of society, then the recognition of him must be enforced. Must, excuse me, must enforce all social duty and enlightened piety, must give its whole strength to public order. And then, it was interesting to me as we engaged in the lawsuit at the school, and I've seen a number, especially with the ACLU, and the ACLU on the surface desires that America would be religion neutral, and that sounds, that sounds kind of cool on the surface, but here's the problem. Once you look up the definition of the word religion, and this is Random House, unabridged dictionary of the English language, Religion as a set of beliefs defines religion as a system of belief. The word belief, when you look it up, as opinions, convictions, thoughts upon which one bases their actions. Ideas have consequences. In America, we love to preach, but we don't do anything. We talk about the power of prayer, but we don't pray. Talk about it, the power of the gospel to transform nations, but it doesn't because we don't. We love to attack one another without transforming the world. We see these things around us and we do nothing to stand in defense of the death of the unborn. We're apathetic. We're worried and we're afraid. We operate in a context of fear, though God's word declares that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. We hear the commandments, we hear these things, but we, we don't do them. We're hearers of the word, but not doers, as James says. We've come to a place of, well, it's a struggle. And as we see these things before our very eyes and what God desires to do to us and do through us, it's important that we apply it. In this, tac- in this text, in this passage of scripture, I was deeply moved this week. And as I look at it, I I thought of one more thing I wanted to read to you. God in his sheer power. He's he's all powerful, right? God in his sheer power could have crushed Satan in his revolt, yes? But because of God's character, justice came before the use of power. Justice came before the use of power alone. Therefore, Christ died that justice rooted in what God is would be the solution. We needed a savior. And the wages of sin is death. God can forgive us or he can wipe us out, but to forgive us, he's still just and has to pay the penalty, so he sent his son to die in our place. That's the concept of Christianity, unlike any religion in the world. We don't earn God's favor, he gives it to us, we receive it as a free gift and we're forgiven. And to be undecided for Christ is to be decided. You're on the railroad tracks, the train is coming, death is coming. And you can sit there and go, you know, I just don't know. Well, to be undecided is decided. Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. And as the train is approaching, what is your answer in the afterlife? 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are perfect. None are righteous. You know in the secret of your own heart all the things that you've done. And if you're going to give an accounting before a holy and just God, the lawgiver whose law we have violated, you're going to stand there and say you're a good person? It doesn't work that way. The Lord speaks of two deaths. He says there's a physical death and the spiritual death. The first death is your body ceases to operate. The second death is separation from God for all eternity, damnation. Well, I don't believe in damnation. Well, you don't have to believe in gravity either. It doesn't matter. It's there. There's a lawgiver. We have violated. We stand before him. We give an accounting of that. Are you going to do it in your own effort? There are none righteous. Instead, he pays the penalty in complete justice. His son is sacrificed so that we can stand before him, cleansed of our sins, cast as far as east is from the west, to be remembered no more. And that's called being born again, born of the Spirit, receiving the salvation, the gift of God. It's free. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But, you know this, if you're born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die the physical death and the spiritual death. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. And even dying, it's just falling asleep and waking in the image of God. To be born twice, Jesus says you must be born again. He said that to, to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We've studied this in our time through the book of John. If you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I say that because he could have brought judgment by force, but instead his character is such that he brought justice and he applied judgment. Therefore, power is not first, but justice is first in society and law. He requires the same thing on the earth as it is in heaven. The government may have the power to control and to rule, but he does not have the right to do so without justice. And that justice is based on God's moral law. And so we see this, and you see these disciples. They are coming face to face with the God of the universe. In the time that they'd walked with Jesus on the face of the earth, they never struggled with his humanity. They hung out with him. They brushed away bees from their hair. They, they probably ate together. They joked. They laughed. Uh, they stubbed their toes. They bled. Whatever. They, they, they never struggled with his humanity. They'd look at it. As a matter of fact, whenever he'd speak of his deity, they were like, whoa. He would always talk of the crucifixion and, and apply the resurrection. They would never think of the resurrection because that's God's stuff. They would be totally bummed out by the, by the crucifixion. They never struggle with his humanity. They struggle with his deity. As a matter of fact, we find in the scriptures um, that, that, that when, when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves in John 10, Jesus answered and said, I told you, uh, or he calmed the wind, winds and the waves, not in John 10, but it was Peter who says, who is this that he commands even the winds and the waves? They were blown away by it, absolutely stunned by it. It was in, um, excuse me, yeah, it was in uh, Mark 4. They feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They struggled with his deity. And all through the scriptures, now this is the third appearing of his resurrected body on the shores of Galilee. Shores of Galilee are fascinating. We're going to go there in June as a church. If you want to join us when we go to Israel, we're going to be at the same spot purportedly that Jesus was. And it's fascinating because uh, what you find is in Matthew 4, Peter was asked by Jesus to take his boat out a wee way from the shore to create an amphitheater with, with a microphone, so to speak, where the water would be used as amplification for his voice. And the thousands of people who are on the shore will be there, and the, the, he, he sets off a, a ways from the shore, and he begins to speak to them. And it's a, it's a natural amphitheater created. 
And Jesus is speaking, and he's, he's sharing with the multitudes. And, and then he turns to Peter. He says, Peter, uh, why don't you cast out your net? And, uh, and he says, you know, cast your net out. This is Luke 5. I've got it all screwed up. It was in Luke 5. He says, cast your net out. Now, Peter looks at him in Luke 5, and he goes, you know, we've been fishing all night. It ain't going to happen. I mean, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. I kind of know what I'm doing. And uh, you... Uh, and he's just here, and he goes, um, but nevertheless, I guess we'll just throw it out again. And Peter's, he's a little slow. Really, he's like a, he's a big lineman who, who needs tutoring. I mean, his, his body grew fast. Brain didn't keep pace with it. He's just a big bulking guy. You do 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 Okay, I'll throw it out, boss. I'll throw it out. And he throws that net out, and it's just inundated with fish. And he's, he's just so blown away that he's, he just says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That was Luke 5. And, and Jesus is using this to cause him to remember. We, we find in, in uh, Matthew 4, which I was alluding to earlier, when, when Peter and his, and his brother were called by Jesus, and James and John were called as well. It was Peter and Andrew and James and John. They, they were the first to be called. Jesus is walking on the shores of Galilee. These two guys, they're, they're both fishermen. Actually, I think, I think uh, seven uh, or eight, eight of the, uh, the apostles are related. And, and, and these two sets of brothers are fishing. They're fishermen on the shores of Galilee. And in Matthew 4, verse 18, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw the two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. They're just out there casting these nets. And then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let that resonate with you. I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And then it goes into verse 21. And going from there, they saw two other brothers, John, the son of, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left their boat and followed with Jesus. And it says in Mark's account that they, they, they left the hired servant with, with the father. And you're going, man, that's very irresponsible. They just pitched on their family business. In the Jewish mindset, if you were asked by a rabbi to come and be in his school of teaching and be like being given a scholarship to go to a four-year university, full ride, and you're, you're, the teacher would be responsible for your feeding, et cetera, and a parent would be like, oh, yes, go, quickly. They, they weren't irresponsible. They jumped and they went for it. And the, the dad's like, yeah, go, 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 son, go, 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 go. And off Jesus goes with his, his, his new students because rabbi means teacher and he's now in the school of Jesus, the, the rabbi. And Jesus says, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And now he's gonna take that statement and all the times that they've walked with the Lord where they've seen his humanity but haven't understood his deity and he's gonna drive it home through an audio-visual presentation on the shores of Galilee in John 21. And he's gonna use it to slam them and prepare them and equip them to transform the world. So after these things, verse 1 of of chapter 21, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. When he showed himself, the word means manifested. It's the same word used uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He manifested himself. It's like, I am God. And they're like, whoa. He manifested himself, and there was a, uh, the, the structure in the Greek is it was, it was purposeful and deliberate. He wanted to drill into them his deity, basically saying, I'm in complete control, and you are mine, and I am yours. 
And so on the shores of, of Tiberias, which is Galilee, which is Gennesaret, he manifests himself in this way and he shows himself to Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. So Jesus hasn't appeared yet. He's going to manifest himself, but he uses Peter as the, the opportunity to do it. And Peter turns and in the structure in the Greek of the sentence where he says, I'm going fishing, it's really, it's even better than that. The structure of the sentence is, well, I guess I might as well go fishing. Nothing. I mean, I'm tired of sitting around here all day long because Jesus said, wait, he's like, what is he going to come on this mountain or is he going to come on this mountain? I mean, it's been days. And, and actually when, when, when Jesus had called them and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men in Matthew four, in Matthew chapter four at the bottom, do you remember um, that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law because she was sick with fever? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? No. Okay. So, so now, you know, Peter has given up his fishing business and he's gone to follow Jesus and his mother-in-law's like, when are you going to bring home some money? Obviously he's unemployed. Oh, he's a student. Oh, this is great. And now, you know, Jesus has been crucified and, and I don't know if his mother-in-law was there or saw the resurrection of Christ, but she's probably just riding him going, you know, we got to bring some money in here. I'm tired of taking care of my daughter that I thought you were going to take care of because she was going to move out and be with you and you're not doing your due diligence and just a you know, good mother-in-law and just going at it. And so he's just probably thinking, you know, I'm a fisherman. He's not coming. I might as well go fishing. To heck with it. I'm going fishing. And, and, and that's the structure that theologians believe the statement is, you know, what the heck? I'm going fishing. But, but what's fascinating about it is, is Peter's the kind of guy that when you don't know what to do, do anything. If you don't know what to say, say anything. That's Peter. I'm going to go fishing. And the fascinating thing is when he says, what the heck, I might as well go fishing. You know, I've been waiting long enough. They said to him, we're going with you also. Same structure in the Greek. Well, let's go. What the heck? And so they all go fishing. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. All night. I don't know if you've ever been fishing you catch nothing. It's awful. We had our Boy Scouts go to the thing and they, all, and they were trying to get their fishing merit badge. Not a single one got their fishing merit badge because they didn't catch a single fish. I don't know if the Scoutmasters did this lesson with them. It would have been a great opportunity, Scott. But, <laughs> but this is different. It's one thing with a little This is a big net. You got to just chuck that sucker out there and then you got to drag it in and the more you chuck it the the more waterlogged it gets and the heavier it is and you're doing it all night and you got to feed your family and everything you're pulling in. it's not for a merit badge it's, it's people are waiting because they're hungry at home and they're pulling this thing in and they're tired and they've been doing it all night they caught nothing and it's a double negative it, it, it means they, they 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 didn't just not catch fish they didn't catch anything nothing at all they didn't get a snail nothing came in they got nothing. And then when the morning had now come, so the sun is rising, it's the coldest time, they're all shivering. The sun comes, Jesus is on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus because it's still a little dark, but it's, 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 the light's coming up. And at that moment, Jesus said to them, children, have you, have, have you any food? Now some of you guys are going, he's calling little kids. It's not techno, which means little baby. Uh, the translation of it would be even better. It's, 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 uh, young, young men under instruction, like lads, like the English word lads. Lads, obviously you've caught nothing. 
Because again, it's the double negative. It should, it should read, lads, you didn't catch anything, did you? Now, when I was growing up in Coronado, California, we had a pier out there and, and you'd go out on the pier and you'd see, you know, this is some of the Filipinos fishing and, and, and you know, they're, they, they were just notoriously gifted at fishing. And you go down and sometimes you buy, you know, some fish from them. But then there's some folks that were just salty and they had that cigarette in their mouth, you know, and the ashes were just all the way on the end and their, their hats all, and they just blood, fish guts, scales all over them. Just, and, and you walk up and you can see their bucket is empty and you walk up and you go, hey, you catch anything? And, and they would look at you. Like, ask me again, I'll remove your eyeballs. And you go, oh, my bad, I'll just move along. I'm just sorry about that. And, and so when... when when this guy's on the shore and these, these salty fishermen are out there catching nothing all night and, and a guy from the shore says, hey, lads, you didn't catch anything, did you? Their response is priceless. Look at, no. They don't get an explanation. They don't get any, no. Just move along. I don't have anything to sell you either, no. I think, I don't know about the structure in the Greek on this one, but I think the word no would be no, dude. I think. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> they, they didn't catch anything. But the word lads, meaning under instruction, is a little offensive. And you caught nothing, did you? Didn't you? You just got nothing, didn't you? And, they, and then he, he says this from the shore. Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. That's so offensive. First of all, we're fishing, you're on the shore. You don't even look like a fisherman. And who are you to tell me how to do my job? But they've been touched by the kindness of Christ. They seem like, well, I guess we could honor him one time with a little throw just to make him happy. And they throw the net. They don't even argue. It just says, so they cast. All right, sure. We'll do one for you. How's that? I mean, it's just going nuts. And, and, and liberal theologians are saying Jesus was on the shore. He had a better vantage and he could see where the fish were bubbling and he told them to go to that side. The net only goes out as far as you can throw it, which means you can see where it's going, which means obviously you can see if the fish are bubbling. Other theologians, well, everyone knows that in the Sea of Galilee is only right fin fish. He says, he says, cast the net on the right side. He throws it on the right side. And then the scripture says, and I want you to pay attention. Pay attention. Stay with me. They were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Let me repeat it. Pay attention. They were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. One more time, three times. They were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Could they draw it in? Why? You guys are so good. Therefore, verse 7, the disciple that Jesus loved, John writing this, obviously writes of himself, he loves me, Jesus loves me, but not you. (laughs) I am singing to diss you. (laughs) Ruined a wonderful song, my bad. 
Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, God doesn't love you. No, no, he doesn't say. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, Peter, all pistons firing, throws another ice sign. I remember Jesus saying, do this one before. I might as well do it. It's kind of good luck and happen. It's the Lord. He's looking at the fish. Fish, lots of fish. I remember that one time before. That was, that was we were on this thing, and, and then it was Jesus. And I remember I was scared. I got down. I said, "Oh, depart from me!" And, and then, and, oh, it is the Lord. And then, the, and then you and I. Okay, it's the Lord. And Peter's thrilled. What did Peter do earlier? We're going to see that he had denied. We saw that he denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. We're going to see at the conclusion of John twenty-one that that he. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? How many times did he deny him? Three times. This is, this is an audiovisual, olfactory connection with Peter. Peter needs every sense to get it. And watch what he does. It says that he says, it's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he'd removed it, and he plunged into the sea. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And some of you are going, how can you pick on the Apostle Peter? Okay, give that a rest. Because it's funny. And I can relate better to him. Peter, is, he's got his outer garment on, his big thick coat. It's cold. He's got it off because he's been working hard throwing this net and he's sweating. He's got his undergarments on, BVDs or whatever. You know, he's just making it happen, just getting the work done. He's, and he, and you got to be, you know, you don't have encumbrances when you're throwing this thing. You don't want your clothes wet. And, and he says, it's the Lord. Now, I was a swimmer and a water polo player. I was an All-American. I, I have records at Coronado High School. I have records at San Diego Mesa College. And I have records at Fresno State that still hold the day. I was a good swimmer. I made the senior nationals. And whenever I swam, I wouldn't put a coat on. As a matter of fact, I know this is a bad visual, but I would wear a Speedo. shut up (laughs) and if it was really important I would shave all of the hair off my arms and my legs I didn't want any drag Peter is not a swimmer he's a lineman we covered that remember he puts his coat on and jumps in the water now a coat had big sleeves and he's swimming and it's catching the water on each of those sleeves it's 200 cubits I don't know what a cubit is but it's a long way and the disciples are rowing next to him he's a sweet guy isn't he dumber than a box of rocks but look at him go And they're just, you know, dry, and he's soaking wet, and he's got his clothes soaking wet, and he's trying to swim to shore, and he gets there, and he's just, he's tired, dumb and tired. And and it says, but the other disciples came in a little boat, which we just saw, and they weren't far from the land, about 200 cubits, just easy to row it, Peter should have gotten in the boat. And and then verse 9, then as soon as they had come to land, 
they saw a fire of coals there, and I've shared this before. It's, it's, it's the word for coals. It's called a black coal fire. Only twice in the scriptures this word is used. It's called anthrakia. It's in John 18, and it's in John 21. Anthrakia was a very specific fire. It was used with anthracite, which was a rich man's fuel. Uh, there weren't a lot of things to burn in Israel, and you didn't have you know oak and all kinds of stuff to burn. Fuel was hard to come by to cook your meal. Rich people carried anthracite. Anthracite had a very pungent aroma, a very distinct smell to it, but it burned hot and burned long. And, and this, this, is, this is what he had. So he's cooking with an anthracite fire, a black coal fire. John 18, the other place where we see the word, it's where Peter is warming himself by an anthracite, black coal fire, while he's denying Jesus all three times. The olfactory senses of the human body, the sense of smell, is the number one sense for memory recollection. Warming himself by the fire, the sense is coming into his nostrils. The girl comes up and says, you're one of them. He says, I swear to God, I don't know him. The rooster crows, locks eyes with Jesus. He, he wept bitterly. Remember that? And it's all just searing into his memory as the smells are coming in. Olfactory. Who's the guy who's soaking wet in John 21? Who's, who's, who's the guy who has his only coat that is soaking wet? Who's the guy who's cold and shivering? Who's the guy who needs the fire? Now, when he gets to the fire, fascinating to me, it says that, that Jesus was, was cooking. He had fish laid on it and bread. Where'd he get the fish? Where'd he get the bread? In case you were wondering, he's God. Fish. Bread. Doesn't say it, but Peter gets there, and you're going to see in the remainder of John 21, while Peter's warning himself, that Jesus asked him three times, and every one of those pictures comes back into his memory. God is taking out all the stops to bring faith to this man to change the world. And Peter would. Peter would be used to turn the world right side up. Powerful, powerful move of God's spirit to transform a man from fear to faith. This man would, would revolutionize the world. And, and it all started with him just swimming in the water, getting cold, and God ties it all together. He uses his failure and his stupidity to make it a strength. And in this, Jesus has fish laid on it, and he has bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now, this is where... My message is brought home. It's breakfast with Jesus. And we're going to have breakfast with Jesus. And here's the fascinating thing. Jesus already has the food and the bread, but he wants you to participate. So bring your fish to me. I already got enough to eat, but I want you to participate. Bring what you have to me. What does Jesus do? He blesses it, breaks it, and multiplies, right? Jesus wants us to participate. He doesn't need us. He wants to use us. To establish effectual justice and judgment upon the earth, God has chosen his people to bring that to a lost and dying world. Isaiah 9, which we'll cover as we get closer to Christmas, that he is the prince of peace and he comes to establish justice and judgment. And the government will be upon his shoulders. He's a wonderful counselor and mighty God. This is the call of the church. And so he wants us to participate this is not a spectator sport. I know it's fun to come and hear the band. And you like the chairs and the lights. I get it. 
And sometimes it's hot and sometimes it's cold and sometimes it's good singing and sometimes it's better singing. Johnny. And sometimes the message is entertaining and sometimes it's just too heavy. And sometimes you offend me and sometimes you don't. I don't care. I mean, I do, but I don't care. It's not a spectator sport. We're not pew potatoes. It's not, it's not, it's not platonic piety. I'm not interested in your, your relevance. Change the world. Bring what you have to the Lord. Let him revolutionize you. Let him bring out all the stops with the audiovisual and the olfactory and every sense imaginable to establish you and me for his glory. Never in the history of the world are God's people more needed than now. There's no time for apathy. And with this, he just lays it out. And he says, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Now this is fascinating because I had you repeat it three times. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net full of fish by himself. A boatload of men couldn't do it. The strength of the commands of Jesus, the lawgiver, the very fact that he has told us to do it, if we'll just endeavor, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He drags that sucker all the way over going, here you go, boss. People have an under, a difficult time understanding this. It's God-directed service. We're so impressed with our ability to communicate and attack other things and to sound so eloquent. But this is God-directed service. Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and by his word directing their activities, they're fruitful. Preaching doesn't change the world. Lives touched by preaching in action, religion, thoughts manifesting in action, change the world. Jesus said it, Peter did it. What did he do? The impossible. Why? How? God ordered it. You go through Hebrews 11 and it's all about faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. They marched around Jericho seven times, blue trumpets, and the walls came down. Right. All I can tell you is that's impossible. By faith, Noah built an ark where there wasn't any water. By faith, Abraham had a son in his 90s or 100s. Sarah had a son. There wouldn't be a gynecologist in all the land that would say that's possible. Or OBGYN, I don't know what doctor you use. Sorry. These are all impossible things that men and women receive by faith. If God said it, I'll do it. And this is where Peter is. And and I'm almost finished. 153 fish. People go, well, the reason why there's 153 fish, as you understand, is there were 153 spoken languages and people groups during the Roman Empire. And until each of those people groups and their languages are reached through a translation of the gospel, then Christ won't return. Whatever. I don't buy it. 
Well, 153, if you break it down, is a biblical number, and you dissect it by the 12th apostle theme. Seven is the number of completion, eight is and six is the number of man, and the thing, and they tie that and divide it, and the second. Give that to Chuck Missler. I, I'm not. I, 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 I read this 153 fish, which means they were all accounted for. One, two, little tiny one, three, big one, four, 100. 153 fish. And the point was, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. My point is, John 10, Jesus answered and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, the net of God. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Every one of the fish was caught. I'm going to make you fishers of men, and nobody's going to take them, and the net won't break. God has declared that our salvation is secure. And then finally, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because for the first time in all their life, the scripture says, knowing that it was the Lord. They were no longer struggling. Uh, they, they were no longer struggling with his deity. They struggled with his humanity. I mean, Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and likewise fish. This was the third time that he had manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They're sitting around and they're like, We're having breakfast with God. We we love to celebrate the humanity of Jesus. I'm a Christian humanist. But that doesn't mean I believe in humanism, man-centered government. I believe in the kindness and care of mankind. I think Jesus came to set the captives free and he came to feed the hungry and cause the blind to see and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear. Ah. But you know what we need a touch of? An audio-visual olfactory presentation of his deity so that when he says, go get the fish, we go do it. Breakfast with Jesus this morning on the shores of Galilee with an audiovisual olfactory presentation, transform the known world. We're going to go through the history of that in the coming weeks, and you're going to be challenged, and I'm going to be challenged. But the world desperately needs every person in this room. And if these seven men had breakfast with Jesus and witnessed the power of no longer struggling with his deity but embracing it, That's what God's going to do with us. And we're going to see the power of his word applied in obedience from our lives transform the known world. And some of you doubt that because you have no faith. And I would say this in the next week. Pray this. Pray this. God, increase my faith. The world desperately needs his people and his power. And we're it. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We're not going to close with song. We're, 
I've gone too long. I don't want to bore everybody. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the men and women present. But more importantly, Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. This text that we read this morning, you were the center of it. You're the center of all creation. God, you are the one who has fashioned and formed us. And as we lift up the name of Christ, all men are drawn unto you. And Lord, I see what occurred in the lives of these seven men that were on the shores of Galilee that witnessed this audiovisual presentation. And Lord, I just think about where we are as a nation and where we are in the history of the world. And at no other time can I reflect back upon where the deity of Christ needs to be applied in a world that is aflame with misery and heartache. We have an entire generation of young people that have no bearing and no direction. And, and God, I, I pray that you would use us to be inspired. I just think of the words of John F. Kennedy in his 1961 inaugural address. The rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. And Lord, who's going to declare that if not your people? Lord, help us, inspire us, and provide for us and empower us for your glory in these coming weeks. We thank you, Lord, and thank you for this fellowship and these men and women and their families. In Jesus' name, amen.